Okay, so we're continuing our series in Matthew today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you today, we have house Bibles around the room. I'd encourage you to snag one of those, uh, especially if you don't own a physical copy of God's Word. You can just take that home or even talk to one of the pastors. We'll get you a nicer one. Uh, but you can turn over to Matthew 9. We're actually going to be looking at one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible today. And I know you're not probably supposed to have favorites when it comes to, like, the Bible. But this is just a story that it just deeply resonates with me. And I also think it's one that's really important for the church. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, tell us this same story from Jesus' ministry. And it's brilliant. In this narrative, we're going to see one of the most basic and I think one of the most important truths of the Christian faith come into play. I'm going to say something to you guys right now that's about as foundational to our faith as something can be, but I think it's something we all need to be reminded of and reminded of often. And that's this. Beloved, Jesus saves sinners. Now, I know as I say that, the vast majority of us are like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I know that part. But, but I want to come back to this, guys. Jesus loves sinners. He seeks out sinners. He saves sinners. And if you will remember for just a moment, I promise you, this is your testimony. This is your story. You are a sinner. And while we were all still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. He seeks us out. In his love, his compassion, he sought out even us. Jesus loves sinners, amen? And yet, and yet, is that not an incredibly easy truth to just forget? Especially, especially when you're plugged into the life of the church. Especially when we begin to look at the sin of, oh, I don't know, others. <laughs> when you look at the world around you. Can we not just admit how easy it is to actually become angry at the sin of others, the sin that we see in our world, become disgusted by the grievous sins we see in this world, to be fearful and worried about our culture, our country, our world going downhill, to, to look down on others in the midst of their slavery to sin and their giving themselves over to atrocious and evil things, all the while, all the while just conveniently forgetting our own testimony. <laughs> right? That we are sinners saved by grace. Guys, don't, like, please, there's no, I promise you, there's no need to front here. We all do this. It's easy. It's easy to do this. And this is why we all need Jesus to graciously remind us that he saves sinners. Sinners like you and me. Because it's just so stinking easy to forget and to be a Pharisee. Read with me Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 9. And we find this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he, he being Jesus, heard this, he said, 
It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me, church. Father, I just want to ask today for each and every one of us in this space, especially, Lord, for those of us who have been following you for a while, and especially, Lord, for those of us who are still considering whether or not we want to follow you. God, I pray that you would hit us afresh with this truth. Lord, let us not zoom past this as something that is too fundamental or too simple or some theological concept that we have mastered. Lord, convict us afresh. Show us, show us the places where we forget your grace and forget our testimony and live as though the entire gospel is not built on your mercy. Remind us afresh of your amazing, compassionate love for those who don't deserve it, for us. Let us leave here today, Lord, challenged afresh, encouraged afresh, Lord, emboldened in you and just having a deep, firm foundation in you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. We need you for these things. Amen. Okay, so... So what's going on in this text? To put a little context around it. If you guys remember, right, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in this chunk of Matthew where we're working through a series of narratives that Matthew's kind of grouped together. And for the most part, these narratives kind of put into really practical lenses the teaching Jesus just gave in the Sermon on the Mount, right? So we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We heard Jesus teach about what life in his kingdom looks like. And then as we've gone through these miracle and ministry narratives, we've seen Jesus putting these teachings into practice. We've seen a lot of things from the Sermon on the Mount come into play here. We've seen things about how discipleship is really difficult and how it requires (laughs) sacrifice. We've seen how the kingdom of God saves us us from the reality of the curse, right? That it, that it meets us in our deep needs. We've seen Jesus's authority as God, as the Lord of creation. Our text picks up in the middle of these narratives. Jesus has been traveling around. This is the early part of his ministry. And most of the early part of Jesus's ministry happens in this region called Galilee around the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. So I have a quick map I want to put up here. And this thing can be kind of nerdy, but I feel like sometimes visualizing this stuff helps us keep the narrative in mind. A lot of your Bibles probably have these maps in the back. But you see, this is all of Palestine during this time in the first century. And that little bitty body of water at the top, that's the Sea of Galilee. And around the top part of that little Sea of Galilee is where the majority of Jesus's ministry happens. His home base is set up in the city called Capernaum, which is kind of in the top, kind of leftish part there, right? This is where he called the fishermen and those things. And we saw how he actually set out across, went to the other, the eastern shore, spread through, did some ministry in an area called the Decapolis. But he has come back to Capernaum. And our narrative picks up as he has stepped back into Capernaum. He's doing ministry here again. He's been gone, but he's back. And now we get this incredibly interesting, but also incredibly scandalous scene. Jesus approaches a toll booth, a tax collector's booth, and walks up to a tax collector named Matthew or Levi and asks him to follow him. Now, 
On the surface, this is not that strange of a narrative, especially for us as modern Western readers, because this is not the first time Jesus has done this, right? Like, he walked around this same shore, and he called the fishermen, Peter and James, and, like, and, he, and, and they've come and they've been a part of it. And we've had, had stories where people have requested to be Jesus' disciple, and he's talked to them about the cost of it. So this seems kind of in line with what we already know about Jesus' ministry and his habit of calling people into ministry with him. But what makes this text so strange and what makes it so scandalous is that Jesus is asking Matthew to follow him. Now, let me set this up for us for a second. To put it simply, tax collectors were hated by first century Jews. Now, I need to pause right here because I'm not talking about this like, ha ha, I don't like the IRS kind of thing, like the way we might joke about just not enjoying paying taxes, right? That's not what we're talking about. The Pharisees and many faithful Jews besides them hated tax collectors. Hated them so much that the term tax collector became an insult and a slur. It became a synonym for sinner. Tax collectors were immediately considered unclean and were barred from temple worship. To even enter into the house of a tax collector made a faithful Jew unclean and themselves unable to participate in temple worship. And for the reason for this, by the way, is actually really understandable. You have to remember, Israel exists right now as subjects of the Roman Empire. They are conquered and oppressed people, and the tax collectors work for Rome. See, wealthy individuals would bid out with the Roman government for the right to collect taxes for certain areas. And when they did so, they would hire out kind of underlings to set up the proper tax booths at the right places to collect the money. Here's the problem. They had no oversight or regulation. All that Rome required was that they get the amount of money they were supposed to get depending on the census of that area. And they sent soldiers and their authority to give the tax collectors the ability to collect that money. The tax collectors made their money by collecting more than Rome offered and keeping the difference. But there was no accountability for how much they actually collected. So tax collectors had really broad authority to just abuse their subjects. They could collect anything they wanted to collect with the might of the Roman army behind them, and the citizens had zero recourse. History tells us outside of the Bible that many of the regions in northern Palestine and Galilee suffered under a 90-plus percent tax burden. There were successful farmers and fishermen who literally had family members starve to death because so much of their harvest was collected by the local tax collectors. This was a brutal and unjust practice. These are folk who, even though they're Jewish folk, they have sold themselves out to the Gentile oppressor and are taking advantage of the situation to further oppress and wound and hurt their brothers and sisters. It's very easy to see why the tax collectors were hated. And by the way, by the way, they did this for the sake of worldly comfort. All this evil, right? They sold out their people. They did all this injustice. They did it for the sake of comfort. 
Because even low-level tax collectors became incredibly wealthy, as we see in our text, that a guy like Matthew owns a house large enough to host public meals, which is a thing that existed in that culture. Even low-level tax collectors were almost universally wealthy in this culture. And this, this description, this kind of scumbag, this is Matthew, a traitor to his people. He works for the oppressor, and he further oppresses. He has become wealthy off of his trade. And by the way, there's even a step further here that kind of twists the knife in this story. Remember I said Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three tell this story about Matthew being called as a disciple. In Mark's telling of the story, he goes out of his way to let us know that Matthew's tax booth was on the shore near near the kind of the cove where the boats came in and out for Capernaum. So there were essentially two kinds of tax collectors, and some of them collected essentially the census tax, and they would hang out on the major highways that moved between the cities. But then there were some who would collect the tariffs, and they would hang out in the major ports. And so Matthew's tax booth is in the port, which means he's one of the tariff collectors. So he collects taxes on incoming goods, people trading across the Sea of Galilee from the Decapolis. But much more than that, he collected taxes off the harvest, of the local tradesmen. So this is the exact same shore where just a few chapters ago, Jesus called two, uh, three, but but, but two separate business owners, right? Peter Peter and his brother and like the, the, the fishermen. These are men who ran a fishing business in this same cove. This is their tax booth where they go and pay their taxes on the harvest they have collected. It's very likely that Peter knows Matthew at least by appearance, right? And this is the guy, this is the guy that Jesus walks up to and says, follow me. This is the part of the scene that I love so much. See, Jesus has been ministering in this area for a while. And we know that a lot of Jesus' teaching actually happened right here on the shore. He would gather on the shores in open area. He could stand on the boats and get a little bit of elevation This is one of his common public spots for teaching, right by where Matthew worked. So we don't know, the text doesn't tell us what, if any, existing relationship they had, but it's not a very much of a stretch to consider that Matthew, I mean, we know Matthew would have heard of Jesus' reputation at this point, because it tells us that all of Capernaum had heard of Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker at this point, but it's not a stretch to consider that Matthew's actually heard Jesus' teaching, because Jesus hangs out pretty close to Matthew's place of work and does public teaching, right? And so you can imagine Matthew, the traitor, the scumbag, sitting at work, collecting his taxes, hearing Jesus preach the kingdom in the background for days, weeks, months. And then one day, one day, Jesus walks up to the booth just like he walked up to the fisherman. And he says, Matthew, come follow me. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus is no stranger to calling out hypocrites and people in power for their, for their poor behavior. He has no problem calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and their destructive behavior. Jesus has no problem causing public scandals. So when he starts to march over to the tax collector's booth, you can imagine how the crowd feels watching the teacher, the rabbi, the miracle worker walk up to those scumbags. And when Jesus walks up, instead of rebuke, 
instead of challenge, instead of judgment, he says, Matthew, come follow me. There's a, a, famous, a famous painting I'm going to show you guys. This is called The Calling of St. Matthew. It's by a Renaissance painter who I cannot pronounce his name. Cusavaggio? <laughs> I don't know this guy's name. But he has the most famous uh, depiction of the calling of Matthew. It's hard to see. It's a very dark painting. But I want to describe something to you because this became the standard for how St. Matthew is actually uh, depicted in paintings. So you see this beam of light going across on the far right here in the shadow. That's Jesus. And he's pointing to one of the tax collectors at the table. And you can look here on the left side. And you can just barely see it. But here's this tax collector with the beam of light on his face. And he's doing this. He's pointing to himself going, me? Because that's how Matthew would have responded. <laughs> that, and that, that, is, that has become the normative way that Matthew is depicted. What I love, and the reason I showed you this one is what I love about this particular painter, if you guys look him up, uh, is that he lived a very troubled life. He wrestled with pretty destructive sin patterns his entire life wrestled with his faith kind of back and forth. This has become one of his most famous paintings. And I just, I just love that depiction. That Jesus walks up and says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. And that first response of, me? Because of course he's surprised. Who wouldn't be surprised that Jesus would call the tax collector, the traitor, the oppressor, this evil man who has done wrong, who has profited off of the suffering of his people. But Matthew gets up, walks away from the booth, and follows Jesus. I love that. Now, again, this part might not seem that strange because this is exactly how the fishermen responded when Jesus called them. But there's one important distinction I need you to think about. See, the fishermen... They owned their businesses. The text is actually pretty clear in how they describe that. Those were their boats, their business, and they could come back to it whenever they wanted. In fact, later, when they feel like the whole thing's falling apart, that's exactly what they do. They go back, they flip open their shingle, and they start fishing again. But Matthew, Matthew walks away from the tax collector's booth, walks away from his compatriots and his fellow tax collectors. You need to know something. The minute he walked away, that job was gone. <laughs> there was no going back to that. There was a line of people waiting to take that terrible job. And the minute he walked away, he lost it. See, for Matthew to follow Jesus, he's walking away from it all. His yes to Jesus is a really big no to his entire way of life. And according to the text, there is no hesitation. Matthew, come follow me. Clunk and follows him. Walks with him. He got up and he went with him. After saying yes to following Jesus, Matthew hosts a dinner for him. Now, there's something strange here. I kind of mentioned this already, but it's important to understand the text. There was this thing that existed in that day where people who were really wealthy would build these public dining rooms. Now, that's a weird thing to think about, but, but stick with me with this for a second, because it actually is instructive, not just for this text, but for several narratives in the Gospels. They would build these outdoor dining rooms that kind of had a really wide open space around them, and the reason was because they lived in a world before TV and the internet, and the things got kind of boring sometimes. 
And so wealthy people would invite interesting people to dinner and they would eat dinner outside in a public area so that the community could come watch. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's a weird way to spend your evening, this is how a lot of people got access to news. What's going on in the world? What's the current political climate? What are the new thoughts and ideas? This is also a social safety net in that most of the time when these large, lavish meals were served, the leftovers were distributed to the poor who were in attendance to view the meal. So Matthew is wealthy enough to have this kind of public dining room, and he invites Jesus and his disciples over, as well as all of his tax collector friends. And so now you've got Jesus and his followers hanging out with the worst of the worst of the worst of Capernaum. And the religious leaders come along, and they're pretty upset, right? Their immediate question is, why are you doing this? Which, by the way, that's a totally reasonable question. I think most of us, if we observed something similar, would have similar questions. Remember, tax collectors are not good people. Matthew has built his wealth off of sin. It is, it is not even slightly a stretch to consider that the unjust tax burden that Peter experienced as a fisherman helped pay for the meal he's currently eating at Matthew's house, Right? This is not a great scenario. And in this time and in this culture, hospitality had a lot of loaded meaning. To accept someone's hospitality was just assumed to be an intimate acceptance of that person. It's why it was such a big deal to not even share a meal with those who were unclean. And yet here's Jesus sharing a meal with Matthew the tax collector and all his tax collector friends. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Pharisees don't even ask Jesus. They ask his followers. It's an expression of their disgust, right? Why is he doing this? A very reasonable question to ask. This is not the kind of behavior that is expected of a rabbi like Jesus. And Jesus is no fool. He's no fool. He knows exactly how sinful Matthew is. He knows exactly how sinful these friends are. He knows better than they know how broken their hearts are. But look at his response when he's questioned. Twofold. He gives a little metaphor, and then he challenges them on their understanding of Scripture. He starts by saying, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus knows what situation he's in. He knows that he's sharing a meal with a bunch of traitors and sinners. He knows clearly who Matthew is. He knows Matthew as he, he sees Matthew with actual sobriety. Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the traitor, Matthew the exploiter, Matthew the sinner. Which according to Jesus means Matthew is exactly the kind of person who needs Jesus. He's exactly the kind of person that needs time with the rabbi. The sick need a doctor. The spiritually dead sinner needs Christ. Remember Christ's opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. Who gets the kingdom of God in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are really bad at spirit. Those who are lacking in their spiritual health and vitality and maturity and holiness. Theirs, beloved, is the kingdom. The spiritual outcasts are the ones who receive the kingdom, and Matthew is very poor in spirit. He needs Christ. 
His friends need Christ. So Christ goes to them. Look at the second part of Jesus' challenges here. Because because Jesus' ministry is not just to Matthew and his friends. He's also ministering to these religious leaders who don't get it. And by the way, I feel like this part's probably going to cut a little bit for some of us, but I think this is important. He challenges these religious leaders to go study their Bibles, right? He, He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, or Hosea, and tells them to go and learn what that text means. See what he says here. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, this text is actually very simple on the surface. It's from Hosea 6. God is rebuking Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, and he's rebuking them specifically for engaging in empty religion without loving him. He says, I don't care about what you do at the temple. I don't care about your sacrifices if your heart is far from me. If you have forsaken your covenant with me and you don't know me and you don't love me, I don't care what you burn on the altar. That's what God says to Israel through the prophet Hosea. They don't keep their covenant. Jesus quotes the prophet essentially saying, I don't care about your religious action. I don't care if you keep the temple. I don't care if you keep the sacrifices. If you don't love me, you don't know me. Stuff is less important. And Jesus is looking at these religious leaders who are very careful to keep the law. These Pharisees who keep the law strictly, who live very self-controlled, disciplined, holy lives. And he says, yeah, you do that, but where is your mercy on these sinners who actually need the life that law offers? Where's your mercy for them? And this word mercy, by the way, this is the key to what we're getting at here. This word that we read is mercy, and Jesus' quote here is this Greek word, elias. And it generally means exactly what you think of when you think of mercy, right? Like kindness and kind love and those sorts of things. But it's also important. It's important because in Jesus' day, this Greek word, elias, was the accepted Greek translation of a very specific Hebrew word that had a lot of loaded meaning. Jesus is quoting Hosea 6 here, but you'll notice if you open your Bibles and turn over to Hosea 6, your English Bible very likely doesn't say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It likely says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The reason is because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Elias was the accepted translation for this Hebrew word, hased. Hased means faithful love, steadfast. Fast love. It does mean merciful love, but it's this word that is incredibly theologically packed with meaning because it's one of the words most commonly associated in Hebrew with the character of God. God's love for his creation is his said love. Think of how many times in the Old Testament you read a scripture that says something like God who abounds in steadfast love, right? This is this Hebrew word, has said. This was Jewish shorthand. For the love of God or the character of God in the created world. So when Hosea says that God desires hesed, not sacrifice, what he's getting at is that God desires for his people to know him, to know his character, and hear this church to be like him. Not just to blindly follow all the rules and religious practices. Knowing God, loving him, living like him, having the same chesed love that God has, the, the faithful, 
steadfast, merciful, patient, long-suffering love of God for his creation. God says, I want you to do that more than I want you to sacrifice animals on an altar. And if you're not doing that, sacrifice means nothing. Know me. Live like me. Love the world around you like me. That's what God says to the prophet to the nation of Israel. And that's what Jesus quotes to these leaders and says, hey, go study your Bible. You're mad at me for having dinner with these guys. Go do a Bible study. Study Hosea 6. Consider what it means that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Woof. God wants us to love like him more than he wants us to be perfect at following religious rules. Again, not that holiness and religion and structure and those things are bad. God set those up for us. But he's telling us what is of primary importance. So those folk should love more like God loves. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to say, you should love like God loves. You should consider faithful, steadfast, merciful love like God loves. So how does God love? Jesus tells them exactly as he finishes the text, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Beloved, God comes to call sinners. His faithful, steadfast, righteous, merciful love looks at his creation in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of their rebellion, and says, come follow me. Come find life. Come find freedom. The love of God walks up to a tax booth And even as the tax collector is pointing himself, going, who, who, me? Love of God says, yes, you, come follow me. Beloved, this is the gospel. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus calls the dead, the unholy, the failures, the traitors, the wretched, unto himself. I know it's easy to forget that. Especially when you spend a lot of your time with church folk. (laughs) If most of your relationships are inside religious structures, it's easy to forget this, but guys, Jesus is for the sinner. He has grace for the sinner. He has compassion for the sinner. He calls the sinners. One of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament is in Paul's first letter to Timothy. There's one verse in it that's really Uh, popular, but I'm going to read this whole little passage to you guys. It says this, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. He appointed me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I had acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says this, he's, he, remember, he's in this letter, he's giving instruction to this young pastor to, to be a better pastor to his church. And he says this to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and it is worthy of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of all. Come on, church. This saying is worthy of acceptance. It's trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners You, me, that's us. You're the target audience for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
This is the gospel message. As this is what Christ is calling us to. The kingdom of God is not for perfect people. It's not a thing earned by one's moral excellence or their stark self-control or their amazing spiritual accomplishments. The kingdom of God is given as a gift from Jesus to wretched sinners like you and I. If you follow Jesus, you already know this. But as I've said a bunch of times, you very likely forget it often. You know it because it's your testimony. I guarantee it. If you are in Christ, no matter how long you've been following him, for minutes or decades, if you take a minute and you stop and you back up and consider your story, this is your testimony in Christ. You were dead in your transgressions. You lived according to the desires of the flesh and the ways of the world. You were hopeless. And without, without any cause to think you might earn God's favor. Because you could not, and you did not. But Christ, Christ in his mercy, in his said, in his steadfast, faithful, long-suffering, patient love, sought you out. Came to your dead heart and said, come, follow me, Matthew. Come, find life and freedom in me. Come, receive the gospel. It's every single one of our stories. Jesus did it. He did it for me, he did it for you. Oh, the grace of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, amen? But we forget. We all enter into the kingdom by an act of sheer grace and mercy. Steadfast has said, love from God is sinful us. But then, once you get in, right, once you get through the gospel door, we oftentimes begin to act like the religious leaders. It was grace that got us in, but now we're here, so we better start living holy lives and earning that golden ticket we got. You better stop sinning. You better start living a perfect, righteous life. All those other people who are still sinning, don't they know they're not supposed to do that? What's wrong with them? What's wrong with this country? What's it coming to? Everything seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket. No one cares about morals anymore. No one has any real sexual ethics anymore. What the heck? Look at the social media and the music and the news. Oh my gosh, have you seen politics? And young people have no work ethic. And this country is falling apart and there's no respect. They're all wretched sinners, every single one of them. It's easy to be a Pharisee. It's easy to be a Pharisee, to turn your nose up at all the sinners around you. But to do so, beloved, is to forget yourself because you as well, you are a sinner. You are the sick person to whom Jesus brought his balm of grace and mercy. His grace brought you in, not your own effort. His grace was sufficient for your sin, was it not? Was his mercy not enough to draw you from death to life? Then, beloved, it is so, it is sufficient for the sin that surrounds you as well. If the mercy of God could bring a wretched sinner like you into the kingdom, I trust me, beloved, it can save the world around you. It can save those around you who disgust you. If the mercy of God is sufficient for you, it is sufficient for the brokenness of this world, for the worst this world has to throw. I promise you. 
So I think, I think this leaves us with three really practical challenges to consider as we kind of land out today. The first one is this. And if you're in this place and you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior, I urge you to consider that invitation. I urge you to consider the love that God has for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And I know because we, I mean, we, we hang. A lot of us have conversations and I know some of the burdens some of you guys carry, but I promise you, there is no sin so evil, so dark. There is no addiction so strong. There is no injustice or trauma done to you that is powerful enough, powerful enough to supersede the love and grace and kindness of Christ to you. If you're still considering the gospel, I urge you to consider it afresh today. Christ has life for you. Christ has freedom for you. Christ has holiness for you. There is nothing you've experienced in this world that can outdo his gospel, I promise you. If you're in this space and you're already a follower of Christ, I want to urge you to take a minute today to remember your own testimony. I think some of us need to take a minute to repent of our self-righteousness and celebrate the gift of the gospel. Some of you in this room are very holy, trust me. You're much more holy than I am, for real. But I promise you, I don't care how disciplined or holy or spiritually mature you are, I don't care how long you've been going to church, that didn't get you into the kingdom of God. It was the grace of God that resurrected your dead soul. So let's take a minute today to remember our testimony, to celebrate the gospel. That truth should draw you to joy. It should draw you to gratitude, to praise, not to self-righteousness and judgment of others. And lastly, do you know what the prophet Hosea meant? Do you consider, do we we need like with the Pharisees to go do a Bible study on Hosea 6 to consider what it means that God desires mercy, not sacrifice? In other words, we might need to take a minute today and just consider, do you love like God loves? Is your love for the lost and broken world, the cursed creation, is is it has said? Is it steadfast and patient and enduring? It's easy. It's life on easy mode to stand back and judge the world for sinning. There's sin everywhere and it's all pretty bad. That's not difficult to do. It's a whole lot harder to step out into that broken and cursed and sinful world, loving sinners and telling them about the Jesus who loves sinners. It's a lot harder. It's worth considering. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean I'm giving you guys like a license to live sinfully. This is not an invitation to be licentious. Be licentious. Jesus spent time with sinners. He didn't sin. Okay? And I know some of you got, listen, I'm not trying to be harsh, but let's like, let's be honest for a second, right? Like some of you guys are using this, this idea of being missional as your excuse to go out and live how you want and party and have fun and, and just enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. Christ didn't go to Matthew's house to party and get wasted. Christ didn't go to Matthew's house to engage in sin. He didn't run off and jump into sexual immorality and unfaithfulness and blasphemies and oppression. He went to Matthew's house to tell Matthew and his friends that Jesus loves sinners, that the kingdom of God is available to them. He called them to the kingdom. So you don't get an invitation to be licentious, but you also actually have to spend time with the lost. (laughs) It means you actually have to go to people who don't know Jesus. 
And you have to figure out how to have a relationship with them in ways that is loving, it's non-judgmental, that invites them to see and know Christ. It means you have to invite folk to know the Jesus who loves sinners. And that may seem scary for some of you, especially if you're the kind of person who's just kind of insulated most of your relationships inside the context of church. But I promise you, I promise you, when you genuinely spend a moment remembering your testimony, remembering that you are a sinner, considering how Jesus loves you, think how he loves us. It just makes that a whole lot less scary. So, Chris, if you want to come up, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you guys to take just a minute in reflection and prayer. And I want to encourage you, and this may be weird for some of you, but I say it a lot, but I want to say this. I want you guys to hear this. I want you to find a way to connect with you and Christ for just a few minutes. If you can do that sitting in your seat where you're at, that's fine and beautiful and wonderful. If you need to get up and move and get somewhere where you can be by yourself or you can get on your knees, if you want to have one of the pastors pray over you, one of the deacons, like that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But find some space for you to be with Jesus for a minute. I want you to consider these things. I want you to genuinely consider them with Christ. If you're considering the gospel, talk to Christ about that and see what he says. If you're in Christ, take a moment to remember your testimony. Take a moment to consider the lostness in your life and how you can be the said love of God to that lostness. Take a moment to consider what it means to go and have dinner with Matthew. See what the Lord tells you. We're going to sit in that for a few minutes and then we'll close out our time with communion.